always amazing to see y'all's generosity uh, and caring for those uh, in our community with the angel trees and uh, also with uh, Gifts of Nicaragua. Uh, that movie, Noah, when it came out, I was so excited to see it. Uh, I remember I took Jackson to go see it on a school night and it was all hyped up to go watch it. And it was just another one of those ones where Hollywood takes a great epic story and then gets so scared of a biblical narrative that they bail on it and do something dumb. That's pretty much the summary of it. And Jackson kept going. as He was really young when we were watching it. He's like, where, where, where is that Where, where is that in the Bible story? I'm like, that, no, no, this is, has nothing to do with the Bible at this point. And even that scene right there bothered me because in the previews, that's how they show that scene. And then you watch it in the movie, and he's referring to some rock monsters who are building the ark for him. No, seriously, that's actually what happens in the movie. A bunch of mythical rock monsters build the ark for him. Yeah, it's, it's nuts. It's, it's, it's nuts. The Bible story is so much better. Anyways, in the previews, though, they make you believe it's that moment right there where the guy looks at me. He's like, you know, you're going to stand there alone and defy me. And he says to him, I am not alone. I, I just, it's just one of those great moments. And if only we as Christians had that same sense in the sight of fear. Now, the second thing I need to tell you about that, that clip is I prepped that clip uh, a couple years back when we were doing a series uh, called Fear Itself. If any of you remember that series back in, back in 2019. And I was thinking about that. And I was thinking, you know, I already used that, though. And I went back and looked at my notes. Turns out I didn't actually use it. Uh, I was going to use it that week, but I went with a different clip that Sunday morning. And so I had this one already produced and ready to go, which I tell you, man, sometimes there's just Christmas gifts that are waiting for you. You don't even know about when you get all the work done for you. But I want to make that connection, though, because when I was first, you know, we, we first, we had these planning meetings about Christmas back in, I don't know, like June or so, and we begin talking about Christmas and what the theme's going to be so we can start planning things way back then for what we're going to be doing uh, this coming Christmas Eve week. And so, oh, and by the way, we're also, we're doing a, a service on Thursday night as well as on Christmas Eve, and some of y'all have asked, why are you doing a service on Thursday night? Uh, why not just do Christmas Eve, maybe Christmas Eve Eve? Well, here's the reason. I know some of y'all want to go out of town, and if you go out of town, you'll probably leave Friday after work, I'm guessing, and so we want to be able to have a service for those who are going to be heading out of town, so that Thursday night service is for you, or for those who have split things going on on Saturday, or NFL fans, whatever it may be, that just, you know, can't take time for Jesus because the NFL is going to be on. I, I understand. I get that, so we're trying to accommodate you. And have a Christmas Eve service that you can go to. Hey, I'm just being real, right? I mean, we're wearing jerseys in the state. You know, anyways. Um, okay. So, <laughs> yes, they do. Um, so, anyways, all that to say, there's a Christmas Eve service Thursday night as well as two on Saturday. If you haven't already, if you could get to the uh, Church Center app or church, uh, was, is that what's called Church Center? Yeah. Just, just making sure that's the name of it. I have it on my phone. Yeah, Church Center app. Yeah. Um, you can go on there and you can register for which service you want to come to. Um, we are going to be rearranging the seating a little bit. So seating is limited. And sometimes we've done outdoor services. Sometimes we've done indoor services. I'm glad we're doing indoor this year. A lot colder this year than in years past. Looks like Thursday is going to be rain and Saturday is going to be literally freezing out. It'll be in the 20s uh, on Saturday night. Maybe even a white Christmas. All right. All that to say, let me get back into this. Um, so 
I was working on this, this concept of Emmanuel, and back in June, it sounded like a great, oh yeah, Emmanuel, that's, yes, that's the heart of Christmas after all. When Matthew starts talking about the Christmas story, it's the first thing he says. He gives the genealogy in Matthew chapter 1, he gives the background of it, and it all leads up to this crescendo where he says, and that is because it was foretold in the book of Isaiah that the virgin will, will become uh, pregnant, and she will have a baby, and it, his name will be called Emmanuel, God with us. Perfect. How could, how, how could it be any simpler of a message than that? Well, then when you get closer to the time where you actually have to come up with at least three messages on this topic, it was kind of like, oh, what's the point of that? I don't under, I don't, I, I know God's with us, but what does that mean kind of thing? Like, what, what's the big deal about it? And that's why last week, if you're going to understand what it means for God to be with us, you have to understand the spiritual dimension. And that's what I, I spent last week trying to get us to understand. There is another dimension, and just because you can't see it doesn't mean it's not real. doesn't mean it is not there. That God is with us. He is here in spirit. He is here right now with us. But just because you can't see it doesn't mean it's any less real. Now, what was unique about Jesus coming to earth is this was the spirit coming here. Remember last week I talked about how at the very beginning of creation in Genesis chapter 1, uh, you had the spirit of the Lord hovering uh, above the waters of the earth or hovering above uh, the land, and then God would speak, and God would speak, and God would speak, and so you would have the spirit who would speak, uh, the intangible voice would create the tangible creation, so out of nothing came something, I think science tells us the same thing, out of nothing came something, and that's what we see happening there in Genesis, and so that the word of God speaks and brings forth life, and then you read the beginning of the New Testament, and you go with the way John begins the New Testament, and he says, in the beginning was the word. And now the word is becoming flesh. So you have the spirit which is breathing life into creation. And this spirit has now entered, he's gone from the spiritual dimension into the physical world. And that's what, the, that's what happens at Christmas is God breaks through that spiritual barrier or the spiritual dimension into the dimension of time and space and lives here among us. So what does that mean for us? Well, about 365 times in the scriptures, God says, do not fear, 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 uh, which tells us a couple things. Uh, one is, life's going to be scary, okay? Just letting you know on the front end, whatever you think life is going to be like, it's going to be scary. You're going to be terrified through parts of it. And for those of you who lived a little while, you can look back and go, yep, that's, that's pretty much true. That's pretty much true. So about 365 times, God says, do not fear. And the number one reason why God says do not fear is not because it's not as bad as you think. It's not because you're just imagining these things. No, it really is going to be that bad. And it really is going to be terrifying. But the number one reason why God says do not fear is what? Because I am with you. I am with you. I am with you. It took me a while. One of the other quotes that comes up a lot when you begin to study this topic is the very last words of John Wesley. John Wesley was the founder of the Methodist Church, a great evangelist, led a great movement of people back into relationship with God, which began in England and spread across the world. His last words, he said this twice, is, best of all, God's with us. Best of all, God is with us. In other words, the best thing about life is knowing God is with us. Why would he say that at his death? Because at that time where he's crossing that final frontier from the physical life into the spiritual dimension, to have known all along that God is with us, not only here but there, is best of all, God is with us. And so Matthew begins off uh, in the scriptures and says, uh, the gift of Christmas or the story of Christmas is all about God with us. His name will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. And 
Uh, the spiritual dimension is a very real thing. We talked about this in our battle series, about how the battles we fight, we fight, face, fight, face. If you, can, if you combine face with fight, you get face. Uh, the battles that we face or the battles that we fight are primarily spiritual ones in this world. Ephesians chapter 6 is we, we do not battle with, with uh, our, our battle is not in flesh and blood. It is against the spiritual powers that we have in actual battle. That's where our real battle is in life. And when you begin to realize there really is a spiritual dimension, you begin to make more and more sense of what it means when God says, I am with you. Now, if you want to trace through the, the history of God with you, that's what we're going to do this morning, and that's why there is pretty much every verse in the book up there. Normally, I prepare the slides myself uh, for today. I said, hey, Alex, can you, you put the verse up? He's like, oh, yeah, no problem. And then he goes, oh, my goodness. I'm like, hey, I don't call you for little things, man. I, you know, <laughs> I got a project for you. That's why I got the professional on this one. And so uh, if you want to take a picture of that, that is a short summary of the highlights of the 365 times where God says, I am with you, that I'll be covering this morning. So with that, Let's get into it. The Bible begins off. I wanna, basically, what I want to do is I want to like put everything together for you. And the reason why a lot of times I do this is because for so long, I would read the Bible, and it always was just like, it was so confusing, it was like mush to me. Anybody else at that stage? And then I took this one class in seminary called, I think it was called uh, Old Testament Theology. Doesn't sound like a really exciting class. But what the professor did in that class is all of a sudden he put everything together. And I don't know if it's just because I was finally had enough base knowledge I could put everything together or because he put it together. And my hope always is that you might have that aha moment where you're able to put everything together. So I want to try to put everything together for you so you can understand what it means when, when Matthew says, Emmanuel, God with us. Why is that such a bombshell moment? All right. We go back to the very beginning of time. And we got Adam and Eve there in the garden. And the most amazing thing about that time there with Adam and Eve is that God comes and he walks with them every evening in the cool of the day. They have open access to God's presence. And they just hang out with God every day. And it's this amazing thing. However, we all know what happens. They look to the tree. They get the idea that there's a life out there outside of God that might be better than the life with God. And so they jump in with both feet. They eat of the apple. And that's what we call the fall of humanity. So they enter into sin. They decide they're going to do their own thing. They're going to walk away from God. When this happens, God comes back in, ready to walk with them again, and what do they do? They run, they hide, and then they clothe themselves, they have to cover up, and you see there's this separation in between them and God, and they hide because they were afraid. Isn't that interesting? They're with God, there's no fear, sin enters in, and now all of a sudden, this world is a fearful place. And so God looks at us and says, because you've done this, because you want to go your own way, I still want to have a relationship with you, but there's not this free access into my presence anymore because of the sin that's in your life, because I don't... I don't, I don't mesh with sin. I don't, I don't do sin. Maybe some of you all have that situation in your own families. You say, you know, I, I don't do family right now because there's too much sin that happens when I, I enter into the house, and I, I'm, I'm not doing that this Christmas. And so he's in the same way that you get to the point where you say, I can't do this anymore, God looks at the sin in our life and goes, I can't live with this, okay? I'm, you stay over there. I'm going to stay over here. And so they are now banished from the garden, open access into God's presence. And what happens right after that? You've got Cain killing Abel. You've got all kinds of things happen. These kind of scary things you see in the opening clip there with the time of Noah. And so then God seeks to reestablish a relationship with humanity where his presence can be known and felt by humanity. And so you move kind of quickly in the book of Genesis over to this character of Abraham. And God says, Abraham seems like he's the last person who wants to have a relationship with God on the face of the earth. It's kind of what we picked up from the text if you read the end of Genesis 11, beginning of Genesis 12. And God says, Abraham... I want you to go to the place where I'm going to show you. Where? Well, just, just follow me, and I'll take you there. And so Abraham begins to follow God. 
And God says, wherever you go, I will bless you. And all people will be blessed through you. I'll be your God and you'll be my man. We see this uh, come up in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15 and Genesis 17. And then after that, you've got his son Isaac. And um, Isaac goes through his own trials and situations. Uh, He's got this foreign king uh, from the Philistine land uh, named Abimelech, and he's scared, and so he doesn't know what to do, and so he's like, tells his wife, like, hey, just tell everybody you're my sister because they're going to kill me because you're so hot. They're going to, no, seriously, baby, they, they, once they take one look at you, they're going to off me just so they can have you, and some of you all look at your wife and go, yeah, baby, I've done the same thing, so just tell them you're my sister, and then what ends up happening? Well, if she's your sister, well, then I can marry her, says the king, and that tries to happen, and God comes to, to Isaac that night, and he says this to him, in uh, Genesis 28, or sorry, Genesis 26, he says, That night the Lord appeared to Isaac and said, Listen, I am the Lord, uh, sorry, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. You don't need to pull this whole ruse. You don't need to lie about all this stuff. I'm with you. I will protect you. He says, I will bless you and I will increase your number of your descendants for the sake of my servant Abraham. Listen, I'm with you. I love you. I'm not going anywhere. You don't need to pull this ruse off. You don't need to go and do dumb things to try to protect yourself. I, I got your back here. And then you see Isaac's son is Jacob, and we looked last week about how Jacob has this moment where he's betrayed his brother, he's stolen a lot from his brother, and he's run away from his brother so his brother couldn't kill him like he wanted to, and then he realizes he's got no other choice but to go back to the land where his brother is, and he hears that his brother is coming out looking for him, and he's terrified, and he has this moment where he's freaking out. And that's this moment where he encounters God, and he wakes up from that, and I love that verse in in Genesis 28 where he says, surely the Lord is in this place. I just wasn't aware of it. In other words, I couldn't see the spiritual dimension, but this night in this dream when I saw Jacob's ladder, the stairway to heaven, uh, I could see it. And I did not realize there was a spiritual dimension to this life. And and I can be okay. Whatever happens tomorrow with my father when I face my brother, it's okay because I'm going there with God because God is with me. And then the next story we see, the next character we see in the book of Genesis is Joseph. Now Joseph's an interesting character. You want to talk about a guy who's got some problems? Uh, Well, let's just recount his life. His brothers betray him. They sell him as a slave. He then is a slave in Egypt where the, his master's wife then betrays him as well and lies about him, gets him arrested. He then goes to prison where he stays there for some 12, 14 years. He meets a cupbearer who's going to get out. He does that guy a favor. He says, hey, do me a solid when you get out and repay the favor. That guy betrays him and he forgets about him. All that continues to happen. You know what, what the phrase that keeps coming up in, in Joseph's life? After he gets betrayed, after he gets sold as a slave, after he gets betrayed again by, by the master's wife, after he gets thrown in prison, after he gets betrayed again, you know what refrain keeps coming back up? And the Lord was with Joseph. And the Lord was with Joseph. And sometimes you're thinking, God, go be with somebody else. <laughs> right? But that's not what he was thinking. This is Joseph writing the stories. He looks back on it and he says, even in that time where I got betrayed, God was with me. And and then when I was sold as a slave, God was with me. And then when I was betrayed by my master's wife, God was still with me. And when I was in prison, God was with me. When I got betrayed again, God was with me. And I look back on that and I know that because ultimately he's vindicated. Ultimately he's brought out of prison some 14 years after the whole trial begins. And he's made prime minister over Egypt. And he looks back over all of it and he says, you know, what you all people meant for evil, God was using for good. And he's able to look back over his life and says, you know, I'm able to face every adversity I come to, not by trying to fight through my, fight my circumstances and fight against God, but rather I embrace them knowing God is with me. And if this is where he's placed me, I'm going to embrace the moment, I'm going to make the best of it. And he made the best of his life as a slave. He made the best of his life as a prisoner. And because he did those things, he ultimately is brought to a wonderful place at the end of the story. And he does all of that because he knows God is with him. 
And so that's the end of Genesis. Then you move into Exodus, and what happens? You, the, the story shifts over to Egypt and the descendants of Joseph, who are now living there in the land of Egypt. And there's a Pharaoh who does not remember Joseph and all the great, wonderful things he did for Egypt. And now the people, once again, are enslaved. And that's where Moses comes onto the scene. And so Moses has every advantage uh, you can imagine, but he throws it all away, runs out in the wilderness, and there God gets his attention. He says, I want you to go back to Egypt, and I want you to pull all of you know, all million people of Pharaoh's slave labor force out, there, out of there with you and go to the land I'm going to show you. And, and Moses looks back in, in Exodus chapter 3 and he says, but who am I that I should go to the Pharaoh and bring all these Israelites out of Egypt? And you know what God says? Moses, I am with you. It's like, I can't go to the most powerful man on earth and take his whole slave labor force and just say, hey, I'm taking all these people, I'm taking them with me. How's that going to go over? God, don't worry about it. What do you mean, don't worry about it? I am with you. And sure enough, he goes back, and God is with him, and does just that. He takes all the people out, and they, you know the story. They go across the Red Sea. Uh, they come through the land. Uh, then uh, Moses sends some spies into the land. They come back. They bring a good report. However, they say, you know, I don't think we can take the land. And so 10 of the spies says, we can't do this. But two of them looked at all the people, and they say, no, no, no. If God's brought us this far, he's going to go ahead of us. God will be with us. He'll do this. And people go, nope, 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 not going to do it. So what do they do? They wander around for 40 years. In the middle of all that, uh, you have this scene where Moses goes up on top of Mount Sinai, and God gives him the Ten Commandments, and he comes down. And what does he find the people doing? They've abandoned God, and they start worshiping a fertility cult uh, idol of a golden calf. And God gets pretty angry with the whole thing. And God says to Moses this, and this is one of the, the best scenes in the Old Testament. Well, I say that I'm going to hit a lot of the best scenes in the Old Testament. Exodus 33, uh, God says to Moses after this whole thing, he says, hey, you guys need to leave this place and go to the land I promised to give you. Uh, and I'm going to give it to you. And I'll send an angel before you to fight for you. So go on up to the land flowing of milk and honey, but I will not go with you because you are a stiff-necked people and I might destroy all y'all on the way. To kind of put this in context, you ever been over, maybe the reason, maybe, maybe this Christmas you're going to be over at your family's house, right? And maybe your brother, maybe your sister, maybe your aunt, somebody's got that kid that they've never told no. You know what I'm talking about? They've never told little Timmy no. And little Timmy just drives you up a wall and won't stop and hits you in the head and throws stuff and breaks stuff, right? And at some point, you look at your sister, your cousin, whoever it is, and you go, listen, if you don't get that kid under control... I'm going to kill that kid. Are we clear? Are we clear? I, I'm, not, I'm not putting up with this. You, you with me? This is where God's at with the people, right? They keep acting a fool, and I'm telling you, at some point, I'm going to take them out. So it would be better if you just went on ahead of me. Listen, I'll send you an angel. I'll send you everything you need. But if I go, I'm telling you, I'm going to kill that kid. That's what God says. And says, I'll, 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 you'll get all the goodies, You'll get the land flowing in milk and honey. You'll get everything I promise you. I just, I'm not putting up with this. You guys go on ahead. I'll stay here, God says. And you know what Moses says back? He says, if you don't go with us, I'm not going. You hear what Moses is saying? You could give me all the treasures of the world. You could give me the land flowing with milk and honey. But if you're not there, God, I don't want to be there. I'd rather stay out here in the wilderness with you than go out there and have all the riches and all the blessings that you could possibly give us without your presence. Because Moses is somebody who by this point in his life, he understands the value of what it means to have a relationship with God. 
I mean, after all, this life really is about what? Nothing more than a loving relationship with God that you'll be able to enjoy for all eternity. In other words, this life is all about getting to know what it's like to be in a relationship with God, to have God with you and near with you and near you all the time, to enjoy that so much that when you get to all eternity, that's all you want to do is spend all eternity with, with him. Moses says, you could give me the whole world, but without you, it's worth nothing. I'm not going. And so Moses says, I don't care what it takes. We will stay here until we get it right, until we have a relationship with you that's tolerable. And that's where God institutes all these holiness requirements. He says, okay, I want you to do this, this, this. Why was the Old Testament so strict with all these holiness codes? Because the people quit, kept acting a fool, right? Don't you sometimes add extra discipline to the kid who's extra wild, right? I always say, if you have a really well-behaved kid and you take him to the Grand Canyon, hey, come on, let's go walk. Let's go look at the edge, right? What happens if you bring Timmy? <laughs> stay in the car. Stay in the hotel, Right? So you have to put all the extra rules in there because people act in such a fool. That's what happens in uh, Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers. All those, why are there all these do's and don'ts in this whole section? Think of little Timmy, okay? All right, moving on. So after Moses, uh, the next character to come on the scene is Joshua. So Moses gets him right at the edge of the promised land, and then Joshua's going to take him into the promised land. The very first thing God says to Joshua is what? Anybody want to guess? It's the theme of the morning. He says, I'll be with you. As a matter of fact, he says to him, um, Joshua, nobody's going to be able to stand against you all the days of your life. In other words, you are going to be a warrior. You are going to go in with an untrained military and take on fortified cities uh, and very powerful kings all throughout this land. However, nobody's going to be able to stand up with you. And here's why. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. So be strong and be courageous. Why? Because you're scared to death right now, and I get it. So be strong and be courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their ancestors to give them. You will be able to do this. Why? Because you're strong, because you're powerful, because you're well-equipped? No, because I am with you. After the story of Joshua, you move in the very next book of the Bible is Judges. And the Judges is a story about people who continue to make bad choices, and they suffer the consequences of it, and then they cry out to God, and then God sends them to deliver. One of those deliverers I'm just going to pull out is Gideon. Gideon's a guy, he's got 32,000 men. You might think that's a lot, but not when you're facing 130,000 men. And God looks at me and says, you know, if I'm going to help you out, you've got too many. Wait a minute, we're already outnumbered four to one. No, 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 you don't understand. If I'm with you, it doesn't matter who comes up against you. And so he whittles that 32,000-man army down to 300. He goes, there we go. I want, th I want 300 men who are committed to me and know I'm with them. That's better than 32,000 men who are trained to fight. And so Gideon takes 300 men who know God is with them, and they go into the battle. And what do you think happens? Well, you know what happens because it's the Bible. They win, right? Why? Why do they win? Because it's the Bible? No, they win because God is with them. God looks at, it, at Gideon and he says, Gideon's you know, being called by God to do this. He goes, pardon me, God, if I can be so polite. How can I possibly save Israel? I'm from the weakest clan and the least of my family. In other words, I'm from the weakest cl clan, and I'm the weakest of the people in that clan. I am the scariest, most timid little guy you could possibly imagine. And God looks back at me and says, yeah, but I will be with you. And I will strike down the Midianites, leaving none before you. Which reminds me, when I was in college, I wasn't a very big guy in college. I, as a matter of fact, I graduated high school with 130 pounds. I didn't realize how small that is until I look at my kids now who are, you know, they would have beat me up if I was in high school, right? Uh, I graduated high school 130 pounds. I went off to college, and when I was in college, uh, there was this really cheap golf course we would play. And uh, 
we got there, and over time, when you play the same course over time, you, if you've ever played golf, you know this. If you play enough, you end up seeing the same people out there. Well, one of the guys we kept seeing out there was this guy named uh, James Brown. Not that James Brown, but <laughs> he actually was the cousin of Michael Irvin, and he was on the Florida A&M football team. He was one of the offensive linemen. He ended up making it to the NFL. I think he played for the Dolphins, a couple other teams. So we end up meeting up with Jamie Brown a bunch, and we play golf. Well, he's, I don't remember his size, but he was probably like 6'6", 320, huge dude, right? Well, we're out playing golf one day. I'll never forget, I, there was this group in front of us playing slow, goofing off and everything like that. And so I didn't think I could hit the ball as far as they were up the you know, course. I hit the ball, sure enough, it goes right through them, almost hits one of the guys. And the guy starts yelling at it and cussing at us, and he starts making moves like he's going to come back. Here. And then James looks at me and goes, hey, he ain't coming here. And I go, why? He goes, because you're with me. And I looked at him, I looked at them, I was like, good point. Yeah, come on back here, yo, come on, come on, come on. All right. What gave me confidence in that moment? My 130 pounds? No, James Brown. That's where my confidence came from in that moment. And this is where Gideon's looking up at God, he's like, seriously, I can't do this. And he goes, you don't got to worry about doing this. You with me. And so Gideon does it. Moving on. Um. Then you move into David. Uh, one of the next you know, main characters to come on the scene is you got King Saul, then you got King David uh, in the books of 1 and 2 Samuel. And the thing about David is God anoints him when he was just a little kid that he's going to become the next king. Well, there's a problem. Right now there already is a king, and this king's making a lot of dumb decisions, which is why God's uh, moving on from him. And when that king finds out that David's going to be the next king, how do you think he feels about that? Not too happy. So he decides he wants to kill David. So here's David. He starts off saying, oh, God wants me to be king. This is amazing. And he goes off and he fights Goliath and he wins and he beats Goliath. All these things are all falling into place. And then all of a sudden the other king realizes that God's anointed this guy to be the next king. He gets very jealous of him. And so he tries to kill him. And so David spends years of his life, I think it's seven, seven or more years of his life, on the run from Saul. And a lot of the Psalms are written during this time. So David actually writes most of the Psalms. Most of those Psalms are written while David is on the run from Saul and fearing for his life. And that's where he writes some of the words that you probably know. You've probably heard some of these. Psalm 23. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, or the, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Anybody want to know why? For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies, and you anoint my head with oil so that my cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will live in the house of the Lord forever. What's David kind of saying? That this life is about nothing more than a loving relationship with God that we'll enjoy for all eternity. People always ask me, where did you get that verse from? Where, where's the verse that says that statement you always say? It's in the entire Bible front to back. It's, it's everywhere in there if you're looking for it. What's David saying? I know you're with me now, and what I'm looking forward to is being with you for all eternity. Um, Psalm 46, he goes on and on and on about God's our protection, how God's presence is our protection. He's our stronghold. Psalm 73 is another great one. You ever have those moments where you look around, it seems like all the people are doing all the wrong things, seem to be getting all the rewards, and you keep on trying to do the right thing, and it's like there's no thanks for, for a good deed, right? No, what does it say? No good deed goes unpunished. Yeah, that's how he's feeling there in Psalm 73. And he's kind of looking at the guys like, God, I'm about to slip here, you know. I'm looking around, and it seems like as if holding out doing the right thing ain't working. And I'm about to go just do what I want to do. I'm about to go look out for number one. And he says, then I came into church, and I realized everything got put back in perspective. And he says this, yet I'm always with you, and you hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? 
and earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. What's he saying? I'm looking around, and when I think this life's about all the toys you can get, I want to go down the path of wickedness. I want to go down the path everybody else is following. When I think this life's about who dies with the most toys, that's what I want to do. But when I go back and I think about the fact that this life is about nothing more than a loving relationship with you, everything comes back in perspective. Whom have I in heaven but you? Psalm 139, maybe you've heard this one. It says, God, you've searched me and you know me. You know when I get up and you know when I sit down. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my comings and my goings. You're familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you already know what it's going to be. You hem me in from behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. How you do this is too wonderful for me to ever figure out, too lofty for me to ever understand. For where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up into the heavens, you're there. If I go down to the depths of hell, well, you'd be there and you'd find me too. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. For if I were to say, surely the darkness will hide me, and the light will become as though it was night around me, even the darkness isn't dark to you, and the night will shine like day. For darkness is just as though it's fully lit to you. Um, so David, over and over and over again, the whole time that he's on the run from Saul, and he's going through a lot of hardships, he says, I take heart in the fact that I know God is with me. He anointed me, he called me, and he's going to make good on this. And I don't have to take matters into my own hand. He's so tempted over and over and over again to take matters into my own hand. He's not going to do it. I'm going to trust that if this is what God wants for me, this is what God's going to do. And you'll see that story play out over and over and over again in David's life. Why was David a man after God's own heart? Not because he didn't mess up. It's because he always understood God's with me. And if God wants me to be here, he'll do it. Uh, move on into the scriptures uh, a little bit later. You, know, you go through all the different kings, who, through 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel deals with Saul and David. And then you have the books of 1 and 2 Kings. And those are all the kings that live after David. And most of them, pretty much almost all of them, except for like five or six, are okay. But almost all of them are bad. And they basically run the kingdom straight into the ground to the point where they get taken off in captivity and they become slaves in a foreign land. And when they're over there, you think to yourself, well, surely God's forgotten about us now. God's not over here, is he? And Isaiah writes this. He says, don't be afraid, for I am with you. Don't be anxious, for I am your God. And I will keep on strengthening you, and I will continue to help you, and I will surely hold you with my victorious right hand. Victorious? I don't feel very victorious over here, God. So he goes on in Isaiah 43, and he says, well, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you go through the rivers, they will not overtake you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned, and the flame will not consume you. And he goes on to say, because you are mine, I've called you by name, and I will give up heaven and earth all for your sake. Why? Because I am with you, and you are mine. Even when you're in captivity, even when you're facing the consequences of all your sins, and you think there's no way God could possibly love me now, he's definitely left me at this point. He's like, nope, I'm right here with you. I still have a plan for you. This is the same, same context where Jeremiah writes, I've got a plan for you. I know the future I have for you. It's a plan to prosper you and bring you to a good place. I know that. I've got a hope for you. Why? Because I am with you. I'm still here. I haven't gone anywhere. And then you go over to the New Testament. What happens in the New Testament? Well, Isaiah says this is so exciting. This God who's always been with us in spirit, he's here. He showed up. We can actually see him. We can feel him. We can touch him. And then you see the disciples, and they're there with Jesus. And there's a problem. When they're with Jesus, good stuff happens. However, when they try to do stuff without Jesus or when Jesus tries to go tell them to do stuff, how's that turn out? Not so good. You, you read it, they're not so good. Like they're out on the boat and they get on a storm and, and they freak out. Now, I've seen the Sea of Galilee. It's not that big, people. Like I used to think because of the way they talked about it, oh, you know, this massive sea, right? 
No, it's a large lake, okay? I mean, it, it's, it's what it is. It's a lake. You can see from one side to the other. You can see the whole thing from a mountaintop. You can see the entire thing. It's not like this, you know, like where I grew up, we had Lake Okeechobee down in Florida. You couldn't see to the other side of Lake Okeechobee. You can see to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, okay? It's not that big of a place. But they would freak out when they hit a storm. But Jesus is where? In the boat with them. And he wakes up. He's like, what's the problem, guys? I'm with you. You know, where's your faith, y'all? Another storm, Jesus is outside of the boat, so Peter's like, well, the safest place to be is with Jesus, so I'm going to get with Jesus. So he jumps out, he starts walking, and then what's he do? He falls. He can't walk on water because he, he doesn't have the faith to do it. Every time Jesus walks away from them, they have problems. And he comes back and he says, seriously, how long am I going to have to put up with you people? You guys keep messing up again and again and again. They can't perform miracles. Um, they cower before authorities. Uh, they're afraid in the storms. I mentioned that. Uh, Thomas doubts it even rose. Peter goes back to fishing after his crucifixion. And then you go over to the book of Acts. In Acts 17, there's this guy describing the disciples. He says, you want to know who these people are? These are the guys who've been turning the world upside down. Ooh. How do you go from the, the 11 stooges running around, like you know, it's like Larry, Moe, and Curly, right? That's what, that's what you picture when you're reading through the Gospels, right? When you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they literally look like the stooges going around, hitting each other, acting like idiots, right? You go to Acts 17... And it says the, they, they turn the world upside down. How's that happen? Well, when Jesus was with them, I was last night with them in John 14, 15, 16, he says, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. I'm going to go away, but the Holy Spirit's going to come and be in you. Now, I have been with you. And in the Old Testament, everywhere you see that God is with you. However, now God is going to not just be with you, but he's going to be in you with the promised Holy Spirit. And he tells him very clearly at the, at the end of Luke, after he's risen from the dead, he says, listen, don't do anything until, until he gets here. Now you see in the beginning of Acts 1, they do a couple dumb things, but he says, don't do anything until I get here. And then the very last thing Jesus says is he's ascending up into heaven. It says what? Behold, I am with you always, even to the very ends of the earth. I am with you. I will be in you. And so in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes, and that's what transforms the disciples from the 11 stooges into guys who turn the world upside down. That's what happens. And then you read about Paul. Paul's the next guy who comes onto the scene, and he's scared to go into Corinth. Uh, he gets to Corinth, and he's kind of freaking out about it. And God comes to him, and he says, listen, don't be afraid. I'll give you the words to speak over in Acts 18. He says, don't be afraid. Keep on speaking. Don't be silent, for I am with you. Nobody's going to harm you. I got your back, Paul. Now, other thing Jesus says before he, in that same little speech where he says the Holy Spirit's going to come, he says, um, in this world, you will have trouble. But that's okay because I've overcome the world. In other words, what he says is, yeah, you're going to have problems. It's not going to be a safe ride. The safest place to be is not in God's presence. Will God protect you? Yes. Will he deliver you ultimately? Yes. But it's a scary, terrifying place sometimes to be right where God wants you to be. Because he will let you go through difficult times, but he says, I'll be with you. I'll be with you through them, and I'll be with you after them. And you'll look back over it, and you'll say, you know, it was worth it. Best of all, God was with me through it. For the sake of time, i got to cut down to the last story. I want to go back to Elijah. There's this time where Elijah is a prophet back in Kings. Back when you had all the bad kings, I mentioned all the bad kings you had. One of them was uh, Ahab. He's married to Jezebel. Maybe you've heard of that lady. Um, not a good time. And Jezebel wants to kill him. And so he runs away and he gets depressed. And he's like, you know, God, I, I served you. I did everything I, was, I thought I was supposed to do. And now I'm the only one left. 
and I feel like as if you've betrayed me, you've walked out on me, and it just feels like as if this is getting me nowhere, and, and I'm done. I, I'm done. I am done. And he hits rock bottom, literally. And an angel comes to him and is like, you need some rest. Get some sleep. Here, drink some soup. Get some chunky soup, right? So he gets some soup. He gets some rest. And then God comes and he speaks to him. And God says, I want you to know my presence is here. And maybe you've heard this passage where he says, he says, go out and stand on the mountain and the presence of the Lord will pass by. And then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he pulled a cloak over his face and he went in, or he went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. So there are times in Scripture where God sends all those things. But with Elijah, he's not in all those things. Why? Why is he in a whisper? I sometimes wonder that myself too, because I wish God would just speak up a little bit, right? I can't hear you, God. Calling out, man. Calling out. I'm freaking out right now. Where you at, man? Where you at? And it says he's in a whisper. Why a whisper? Why a whisper? You see, with the earthquake and the wind, it's the God who's far off. We're very familiar with the God who's far off. As a matter of fact, our theology kind of has God up there, and we're down here, and we're crying out to God, don't you see me, don't you hear me? Remember the illustration last week when, when I had, 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 had two folks sitting right here, and I was right there with them? Just picture God right there with Elijah going, I'm here. There in the spiritual dimension, he's there whispering. interceding on your behalf. I'm praying. I'm giving you the words to pray and to speak. I'm getting, putting words in your mouth as you go through these times. Will you just rely on me and trust me? I'm with you. I'm with you. And when you fully understand that, like John Wesley with his dying words, would say, and best of all, God is with us. Would you join with me as we close our time in prayer? Father, this Christmas season, may we just reflect on what it means that your name shall be called Emmanuel, God with us. That you're right here, this close and this personal. That your presence might be felt. Father, we often look for you in great signs and wonders. When more often, Father, you're just that gentle, still, small voice speaking to us and often from within us, gently guiding us in the direction we should go. May we seek out your presence, Lord, that like Moses, we wouldn't want to go anywhere that you're not going to be. 
that like David, we always look to you for our refuge and trust you, Lord, that if, you're, if you want this to happen, you're going to make us happen. And like Elijah, we would just know just how close you are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.